Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a special one for you. This one is called The 20-Hour Lecture from James Jordan. Way back in the early episodes of this podcast, we posted a very important uh, set of lectures from Jim on how to read the Bible. He was later asked to do that series at another church, and he finished that series with this lecture where he basically gives a history of the world, a theological history from creation to our present age. Some of this material can be found in Crisis Opportunity in the Christian Future, as well as other publications of Jim's, and he references a couple of those throughout the lecture. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this talk as much as we do. It's a really fun and interesting listen. And here is James Jordan in a talk he's titled, The 20-Hour Lecture. Now tonight, I have to give you what I call the 20-hour lecture. That is to say, this lecture lasts 20 hours. But we don't have 20 hours, so we're going to survey it in... Two hours? That's, this is another two-hour session? Okay. Now, everything I'm going to say tonight is in this book, which is for sale over there. It costs 350 pennies. There are that many of them lying around on the street that you can collect over the next two months. So if you pick this up, it will cover what I'm going to talk about. But, you know, it's different to read something than it is to hear it talked about. And I'll be talking more about some of the things that are in here and other things we'll skip. But the sort of unified presentation that uh, you say, wow, great, I wish I could hear that again. Why, you can get it and take it home and read it. So I hope you'll pick them up because I do think that this is the distilled essence of many years of reflection and it is nicely packaged there. And it'll be kind of rambling right now because we have 20 hours to go through. And if we were going to spend 20 hours, ladies and gentlemen, we spent an hour on Adam, and we spent an hour on Cain, and an hour on the Sethites, and an hour on Noah, and we spent an hour in the tower. And we spent an hour on Abraham, and an hour on Jacob, and an hour on Joseph, and an hour on Moses, and an hour on the law, and some other hours as well. Now, the reason for that is that God in history is revealing himself to us more and more because the way we grow is in our interface with God. Okay, The way you grow is through your contact with God. When God draws near, we change fast because our personalities are responding to His. When God is at a distance, we slow down. When God comes in revival, you see things happen real fast. You know, we look at America today, we say, boy, it would take a long time. No, there could be a revival and things could happen real fast. They have before. I don't really think that's going to happen right now, but it could. When God draws near in that sense, things happen fast because God's presence causes us to change. The closer we get to him, the more unique we become. I think we spent some time on that already. The closer we get to God, the more unique we become. And so he is growing us by revealing himself to us. And he doesn't reveal himself to us all at once or we would be burned up. His presence is too monumental. And so he graciously reveals himself to us by stages according to how old we are. Okay? You don't take a two-year-old and start discussing nuclear physics with him. 
and you don't take Adam and Eve and Cain and Seth and give them the Ten Commandments. And you don't take Moses and give Moses the book of Psalms. And you don't take David and give David the epistles of St. Paul. Because God is growing the human race and revealing himself stage by stage so that we are growing and transforming. And we spent a lot of time on that. But what I want to do tonight is explore another dimension of it. And that is, as God reveals himself, he comes to us first and shows himself to us as a father. And then he shows himself to us as a brother. And then he shows himself to us as a matchmaker. Over and over and over again in history, we're going to see over the next 20 hours that God primarily comes to Adam and Eve as a father. And he primarily comes to Cain and Abel in terms of being a brother. And he primarily comes to the sons of God before the flood, that is, the descendants of Seth, as a matchmaker. And in terms of this, we've also seen that God made three places that we live in in the world. Can anybody remember what those three places are? Hmm? Does anybody remember? Okay, sanctuary, home, and world. Okay, Adam was in what? The sanctuary. Cain and Abel were in the homeland context. And the Sethites and the daughters of men were out in the world context. And Adam and Eve were kicked out of the sanctuary and Cain was kicked out of the land. And at the flood... All the bad guys were just kicked right off this world altogether. That's a progression. In worship, we're primarily talking to the Father. Primarily. We talk to the Son, we talk to the Spirit. But Jesus, when he teaches us how to pray, says, Our Father. And the Spirit comes into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So worship is primarily a Father thing. All of God does all that God does. So you never have the Father without the Son and the Spirit. Because all of God does all that God does. But there's always one person preeminent in any given action of God. That's deep, isn't it? But it's true. Out in our relationship with other people, in the world of business and the like, we're encountering brothers and we're dealing with where Jesus was in social relationships. And when it comes to relationships with outsiders and the most alien, strange people in the world, in other words, the opposite sex. We're dealing with the Holy Spirit. So now, let's spend an hour on Adam. We'll condense it real quick. God comes to Adam in the garden in terms of worship. He meets with him on the Sabbath day at those two trees, those two sacramental trees. Adam and Eve have sinned. But if they hadn't, they would have had sacramental fellowship with God the Father. And he would have fed them. And they would have gathered around him and praised him, and as we saw last night, given thanks to him. We would have engaged in thanksgiving and sacramental fellowship at the two trees on the first day, which is the day of the Lord, right there in the garden. Well, that's our hour on Adam. Anything else I wanted to say about that? I don't think so. No. Adam rebelled against God's authority, his fatherhood, by stealing what God has said not to steal. So we move then to Cain and Abel. That's the next story. And here we have two brothers. They live in the land outside the garden. 
The land isn't given a name, but I called it the forecourt land. The land is right east of the Garden of Eden. And they could look up the mountain and see this cloudy area and every now and then some flaming swords flashing around in there. And they brought their sacrifices up near to that place. It says they brought their offerings to the Lord. as geographical language. They brought their offerings up near the gate of Eden, the place where the altar would be built later on in front of the tabernacle. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice because Abel confessed that he deserved to die and had an animal to die for him. But Cain brought a bribe, he brought a gift, and it's good to bring a gift, but he didn't confess that he deserved to die. And so his gift was rejected. So Cain is angry. And when people are angry, they have a choice. You can either take your own responsibility, turn around and go ahead and kill yourself the way you're supposed to, or you can blame somebody else. And Cain blamed Abel. And Cain took it out on Abel, and Cain killed Abel. So now we have a brother-brother sin. Cain is kicked out of the land. Now we'll go back to Adam for just a minute. We're going to put a word on this. Adam steals from God the Father. And stealing from God, the technical name for stealing from God is sacrilege. Stealing from God's holy things. He stole of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and tried to make himself equal to God the Father. Remember this morning we saw Jesus does not try to make himself equal to God the Father. But Adam sought to make himself equal to God the Father by stealing something from God. Brother-brother murder is called fratricide. The second great sin is fratricide. The word fraternity means brotherhood and frater in Latin, fratricide, is brother murder. Brother kills brother. So fratricide takes place in the land, and the punishment for committing brother murder is to be kicked out of the land. You've sinned against God the Son. You've sinned against God the brother who is associated with the land. So we move to the third area. That was a quick hour. We've got to spend a little time on the sons of God and the daughters of men. And this will have to take a little bit more of that hour because... There is a mistaken view of this passage that floats around based on Jewish myths. Genesis chapter 6, and I used to teach it this way, but then I discovered I was wrong and changed my mind. I've got it all right now. Okay, Everything I say this to you all is now right. I won't be correcting any of it ten years from now. Believe that if you want. Chapter 6 of Genesis says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born of them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were good to look at. It's the same word as when Eve saw the fruit was good to look at. Exactly the same. And it's the same idea of forbidden fruit. Pretty girls are forbidden fruit. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, you will hear it said sometimes that the sons of God are angels who are now marrying with human women. The angels saw that some of the girls were pretty and they married all the pretty girls so that the human beings were just left with the ugly girls to marry. And that's because there are a couple of places in the Bible where sons of God means angels. But most of the time in the Bible, sons of God means the righteous human beings. And folks, that's what it means here because this passage starts in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam, and it traces down the godly line of Seth to Noah, and then in chapter 6 it continues right on with the fall of the Sethites, and this section ends in verse 8 of chapter 6, and the next section starts in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. 
So chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 8 is one section. And it tells us that there was this line of godly people descended from Seth. And then we find that there's no godly people left in the entire world except Noah. So what happened? Well, the answer is the sons of God married the daughters of men. Okay? The Christian guys went after the cute pagan girls instead of the ugly Christian girls. That's what it says. That's not intended to be entirely serious. But, you know, that can be a problem even today. The main thing is we're told that the righteous people, the people who had the word of God, committed the sin of intermarriage. They committed the sin of intermarriage with the pagans. Now, God's holy matchmaking spirit doesn't want that to happen. And Yahweh said, My spirit will not always strive with man forever because he's flesh, but I'll give him 120 years. Okay? The spirit wants to bring Christians together with Christians. So it's a sin against the Holy Spirit when we form close alliances with the unbeliever. It's a sin against the Holy Spirit when we compromise or intermarry with the unbeliever. This is a sin of compromise, a sin of intermarriage. And it's always pictured as intermarriage in the Bible, where you say, well, it doesn't matter who I marry. I can marry this non-Christian person. Now, if you're already married to him, okay. Paul says in Corinth, if you're already married to an unbeliever, the household is sanctified, and so forth. But we're not supposed to get into it. If you get into it, you can't divorce. You know, If you chop your arm off, you don't get another arm. It just stays chopped off. If you make the mistake of marrying three women, you've got three wives, you're stuck. If you make the mistake of marrying an unbeliever, you're stuck. You just have to ask God to change them. You know, unless they beat you or something, then you know there is biblical provision for divorce in extreme situations. But you're not supposed to do it. And it says the Sethites, the godly people, well, they were supposed to be godly, the church people, were marrying with the unbelievers. And the result was, verse 4, the Nephilim were in the earth and afterwards. These were mighty men, men of old, men of renown. You know what happens to a pagan civilization when a bunch of Christians intermarry with them? Instead of dying off the way pagan civilizations do, the energy of the Holy Spirit is plugged into that pagan civilization. Look at Pagan civilizations are full of brother-brother murder. You want to see a pagan civilization right back here in Genesis 4. This is the way things were going in Cain's civilization. After Cain murdered Abel, Cain went out and built the first city. He just popped it right up. Didn't take him any time at all. And the seventh generation from Cain is Lamech. And Lamech has two wives, so he's the first to commit polygamy. If you cleave to your wife, you can't have another wife. Because you're stuck to your wife 24 hours a day. He didn't cleave into his wife. He pops free of his first wife and marries another one. And then he murders somebody. And the first poem in the Bible is Lamech's sword song. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. Ye wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So he beautifies his violence with artistry. And we have a civilization here where there's polygamy and murder going on. Now, that civilization is going to self-destruct. But around this time, the seventh generation from Adam, the time of Lamech, right about that time, the sons of God start intermarrying with that civilization. Just as the pagan civilization starts to self-destruct, the Christians come in and start giving a bunch of strength to it. 
by intermarrying with it and bringing the discipline and order that Christians bring to a situation, and they make the civilization extend. So at this very time, we have the seventh from Adam on Seth's side. Who is who? Ah, who knows your Bible? Who is the seventh from Adam in the godly line? Lived the same time as Lamech. He didn't die. I'll give you a clue. Enoch. And according to the book of Jude, Enoch was prophesying against the sons of God who were doing ungodly things in their ungodly ways, turning against the Lord. Jude said this is what people who leave the church do. That tells us that Enoch was prophesying against these sons of God who are marrying the cute pagan girls. That started up at that time. So right at the time the pagan civilization started to self-destruct, the Christians started getting involved in it and propping it up. We're not supposed to do that. Oh, no, I'm preaching now. I can't spend too much time on this hour on the Sethites. But the sin is the sin of intermarriage and compromise in the world. And when people have gone to this extent, that's when God says, you know, I've had it. I think I'll start over again. And so we need to spend an hour on Noah. Noah is the one who brings Sabbath. It says that when Noah was born, his father, who was also named Lamech, prophesied concerning Noah, this one will give us comfort from our work and from the toil of our hands. He will give us Sabbath. The word Noah means rest. So the Sabbath comes. And what's involved in that? Well, it's the cutting off of the old. Noah gets a whole year off. He gets a nice sabbatical year where he can just relax on the ark and not have to worry about anything except cleaning up after these animals. But maybe the animals hibernated on the ark. I'd like to think that. And he didn't have to clean up after them. And what they eat on the ark? Well, they probably ate manna, you know? So it was probably a nice year off on the ark. He's there with his wife and his sons and their wives. and No little kids to drive them crazy. Just eight grown-ups. Not a bad situation. Lots of checkers and chess and video games and other things for a year on the ark. Then they get a rest, and then God sends them forth again because the Sabbath involves moving forward into the kingdom. If you want to pick up on that, read the book of Hebrews. Moving into the rest is what Hebrews is about. Don't cling to the old ways. Move into the rest. And God calls Noah to move into the rest, and Noah does. Because after the flood is over, he builds a vineyard, and he makes... Oh dear, he makes alcoholic wine. And he drinks some and goes to sleep and he has a nice rest. So he has moved into Sabbath. And he also starts things again. Now, from that hour on Noah, where this first cycle is ended, now we can look back over and we can start seeing how God is moving in history. He starts in the church, and the church is always where God starts. Might not look that way, folks, but with the eye of faith, we need to understand that the church, with all of her weakness and her problems, is the center of the kingdom of God, and is the alpha place of the kingdom of God, and is the nursery of the kingdom of God, and is always where God starts. And then from there, we proceed out into a land, and then we proceed out into world influence. And the particular problem the church always has to be aware of is seizing God's prerogatives. That's what our Protestant reformers were concerned with in the days of the Reformation. The Roman church had seized God's prerogatives. And they said, no, you can't do that. Then in society, the problem is going to be social violence. And in the world, the problem is going to be compromise and intermarriage. In your home, the problem 
is brother-brother strife. But, you know, your children, brothers, brothers and sisters, can fight more viciously than you can ever imagine. It's just amazing how they fight. Of course, it doesn't last very long because they don't have long-term memories. When you grow up, you can hold a grudge for years. The little kids don't, you know. They hold a grudge for a couple of hours. Strife, interpersonal strife, is what you get in the community, in a home, within a country. We see it in our own civil war. We see it today with all the factions in our country. And then out in the workplace, the temptation is to betray your home and intermarry with those outside. Instead of marrying your sisters, okay, the Christian girls are tempted to betray all that and be cool. See? Those people out there, they don't understand the church. They think you're a bunch of weirdos come in here and sing and study the Bible. So you don't want to let them know that you're really like that. And you compromise. That's the tendency out in the world. That brings us to Noah. God says, start over. And Noah brings Sabbath. And then, as I said, the Sabbath is not just cutting off the old world and resting. It's also moving forward. And so in our fifth hour, what we need to do is spend an hour on the tower. Because at the tower, we see the sin of refusing to move out. All the people said, we're staying here. We're staying here at this tower. We're going to stay here and we're not going to move out. We're going to build a city and a tower. It says the people were of one lip, which means one religious confession, and that's the tower, and one vocabulary. That's their language. That's the city. God came down and he said, I'm scattering you out whether you like it or not. You're going to move out into a new world whether you want to or not. And so he scattered them. And once he'd done that, he started to reveal himself again as father, brother, and matchmaker. But since the world had fallen into sin, God said, I'm going to select one group of people and we'll work with them. And after 1,500, 1,800 years, I'll plug everybody else into what I've done. So he calls Abraham out of the tower, out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is probably about where the tower was. Abram comes out. So we got to spend an hour on Abe. Okay? Who is Abraham? What does Abraham mean? Abram means big daddy. Big daddy. Not exalted father. He means big daddy. Yes, Southern. That's right. And Abraham means even more exalted father. It's just a lengthening of the name. Abram, Avram. Really exalted father. Abram's history is all about God the Father. God comes to Abram as the father and says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you a son. And I'm going to make you like me. So Abram becomes like God. Like God the Father. And then God says, I want to teach you something, Abram. I want to teach you something really important. This is a Father's Day sermon, so... This hour on Abram will be Father's Day sermon. Abram has to learn something very important when his son is about 17 years old. And that is that none of us are good enough to be fathers. So Abram has to take Isaac and turn him over to God the Father, which is what he does. It's what we have to do with all of our kids. If you don't, if you try to control your kids' lives after they're grown, that is a terrible sin. The Bible says for this cause, man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Sometimes people say we want to be patriarchal. No, we don't. We believe in the nuclear family. 
We believe that every new marriage starts a new kingdom and breaks off from the other one. The ancestors do not rule us. We don't have totem poles with ancestors with big eyes looking at us and telling us never to change. And grandfathers and grandmothers don't rule. Mothers and fathers rule. As soon as the boy marries, he's gone. It doesn't mean he doesn't have anything to do with you anymore, but he's got his own home, makes his own decisions. Most of us kind of know this, you see. But because the family is in trouble today, we have people saying, oh, let's go back and have a patriarchal system. Let's have the man be the absolute dictator in the home. Let's have the grandparents running the situation. No, let's go to the Bible and see. Just have good biblical families. How did I get off onto that? Because God is telling Abraham, your child is now to the point where... Even as wise as you are, Abraham, you can't handle it anymore. you got to turn him over to me. Only God the Father is big enough to be the father of our children once they're grown. And that can be hard to do. Hard for mothers, empty nest syndrome. Hard for fathers. Fathers tend to call their sons their same name. You know, My sons are not named James Jordan Jr. Even if they're not named that, I tend to think I'm over as mine. And I remember when they were little, and I rocked them to sleep, and I sang to them, and I read them stories. I don't really want them to go. Fathers can tend to try to make their sons be just like them. I'm in the car business, therefore you're going to be in the car business. That's not a temptation to me. I mean, there's just no way my sons are going to grow up to be like I am. Theologian is kind of like, you know, composer. Your children don't grow up to be like you, unless you're in the Bach family, they were all musicians, but that's kind of rare, you know, but in most occupations there's a tendency there, and God is telling us here that he's father, Abraham shows us something about fatherhood, but God is the supreme father, and Abraham's whole life is spent in this sanctuary context, we talked about this a little bit, now we can review it, Abraham is building oasis sanctuaries. We always see him at altars. If you were to read the Abraham narrative in Genesis, which is called the generations of Terah, because Terah is his father, so the offspring of Terah, it starts in Genesis 11, verse 27, and goes to 2511. That's the Abraham narrative. You find it over and over again. It says Abraham went somewhere and built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. And he went over here and built an altar. He went over here and he built an altar. He's always rebuilding the Garden of Eden. He's always setting up a holy mountain and a sanctuary, planting some trees and building water, and God is constantly talking to him. And this story of Abraham is kind of an answer to the sin of Adam. Abraham does make one mistake. His wife comes and says, What do you think of Hagar? And he says, Well, she's pretty cute. Those daughters of men, you know. So he gets involved there briefly, but he repents of it. And he doesn't blame Sarah, even though Sarah was the one who suggested it. You remember, Eve was the one who suggested Adam go ahead and eat the fruit. But Eve isn't really to blame because she didn't have all the information. Sarah is the one who comes to Abram and says, go ahead and take my Egyptian daughter a man handmaid, which he does. But when it's over, where Adam blamed Eve and tried to excuse himself, Abram takes responsibility and doesn't blame Sarah. So the Abraham story is an answer to the Adam story. And where Adam was not patient, Adam's basic sin was impatience. According to Hebrews, and according to a number of places, we're told that... I need to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 6, 
Well, chapter 5, verse 14 says, Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. If you are mature, you are ready for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were babies. They were supposed to go to the tree of life and start with the milk. When they were mature, they'd be given the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Solid food for the mature who have acquired the ability to discern good and evil. Well, how does that happen? Chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. See, Adam and Eve knew they were going to get to eat of that tree eventually because God said to them, Behold, I have given you every tree. It shall be food for you. So they knew the prohibition was temporary, but they weren't patient. See, when God says no, that's the opportunity to learn patience. The word no is the most important word there is, in a sense. The Ten Commandments all say no. And that's what our children have to learn first, no. No, and you'll get spanked if you disobey, okay? But Adam wouldn't listen to the word no, so he didn't develop patience, and he grabbed at the promise and he lost it. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, and thus having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. Now, patience, that's Abram. At the age of 75, God says, ah, Billy Bob, I'm changing your name to Abram. Mighty father, come out of Ur. Come on over here in the promised land. I'm going to make you a big father. Well, it's kind of embarrassing, Lord, because when people ask me why my name is Mighty Father, I don't have any children. So he comes into the promised land and meets Mamre and Eshcol, and he leads them to the Lord. And They come out every Sabbath day, and they worship with Abraham, and that's what happened, all right. And they say, Mighty Father, huh? How many kids do you have? Well, I don't have any. Mighty Father? So they're all laughing at him behind his back. And he has to live with this and be patient. This goes on for 25 years. Then he has Ishmael, and that's just one son. He has to give him up. Finally, he gets Isaac. And a few years later, he has to give him up. I mean, Abraham, well, before that, God changes his name to father of a multitude. He does that at the time he gets Ishmael. Father of a multitude, eh? How many kids do you have? One, by my handmaids. That's patience. And Abraham, we see, the book of Hebrews says, he was looking for a city. The first fulfillment of that city is Solomon's Jerusalem. I mean, it was right over there. It's the same city Melchizedek had. But that wasn't Abraham's city. Abraham was able to look a thousand years into the future and plan his life accordingly. Now, that's becoming like God, to be able to perceive the future that far ahead. He's growing up. Well, that's a lot of what it means to say, Father, in the sanctuary, we're learning patience. And Abraham does. He's not like Adam. But our hour on Abe is over. We must move to Jacob. I spent an hour on Jacob. Now, if you want to read the Jacob narrative, it runs from Genesis chapter 25, verse 12, to chapter 37, verse 1. Chapter 37, verse 1. That's the Jacob narrative. And what's Jacob's story all about? Well, there are one or two places where we read about Jacob or Isaac building an altar, but not much. The Jacob story is lived not around altars, but out in the land situation actually in exile from the land and coming back into the land. Abraham, the focus isn't on being taken out of the land and coming back. It happens a few times, but that's really in focus here. But the main focus is brother, brother, strife. Because we have another Cain here whose name is Esau. And Esau is presented in this story as committing every sin that's been committed so far in Genesis. Esau marries pagan woman. 
daughters of men. He's impatient. He doesn't wait until a Christian girl comes along. You know how old Jacob was when he went off to get a wife? Seventy-seven. He was 84 when he got married to Leah and Rachel. I can prove it to you, but it takes a little while to show you the verses. But it's very easy, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> That's what I call patience. Okay? How old are you, 83? You a virgin? Yep. Of course I'm a virgin. What would you think? I'm not married. That's patience. Esau, he wasn't patient, you know. He marries one woman, then he marries another one. He commits the sin of polygamy like Lamech. And then there's a situation where he comes in from the field, and of course there's lots of people cooking food around. This is a whole sheikdom. Abraham had hundreds of people in his sheikdom. There are lots of pots of lentils being cooked out here, but he comes by and he sees this red-looking stuff, and he wants some. He wants to drink some blood. That's why it stresses that the stuff in the pot he thought was red. It's associating us with the prohibition on drinking blood. He intermarries with the daughters of men. He's out to murder his brother. He's impatient. He is like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. We're told he saw as a hunter. Jacob, on the other hand, is presented as a righteous man who is happened to be real skillful in living with a bad father and a bad brother. There are two things we're told at the beginning of the Jacob story that govern the entire story. And most people don't pay attention to these, and so they keep thinking Jacob was a bad guy, and in fact, Jacob was a good guy. God says in Genesis 25, verse 23, to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be separated from your body, one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now that's not just a prediction, that's a command. Isaac and Rebekah knew that Jacob was supposed to be treated as firstborn, and he was supposed to inherit. And when Isaac decides to give it all to Esau, he is disobeying God, and he is trying to break the commandment of God. That's why Rebekah is right to try to trick him to obeying God. And the other thing we read about him is this. And if you have your Bible open, you might even want to open up a pencil to make a change in what yours says. Chapter 25, verse 27 says, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a perfect man. If your Bible says anything else, it's wrong. Back in Genesis chapter 6, when it says, Noah was a righteous man, perfect in his generations, it's the same word. In Genesis 17, verse 1, when God says to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect, it's the same word. When it says in Job chapter 1 that Job was a perfect man, it's the same word. And it only means one thing. It doesn't mean well-rounded. It doesn't mean plain. It doesn't mean peaceful. It doesn't mean cowardly or nice. It means perfect. Whatever God meant by saying to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect, he means here when he says Jacob was a perfect man. But Jacob is actually the model of a righteous man who has to live in a really hard situation with a father who doesn't really like him and who is out to cheat him and with a brother who is violent. And so the story of Jacob, and if we had an hour we'd spend it, the story of Jacob is about like Cain and Abel. Whereas Abel wound up getting himself killed when he spoke to his brother, Jacob has to figure out ways to speak to his brother without getting himself killed. Because God is going to reject Esau, and Esau is going to try to kill Jacob, and Jacob is going to have to flee. So wisdom and shrewdness in dealing with the evil brother is a theme here. And fratricide is all in the air as Esau schemes to kill Jacob and says, as soon as my father is dead, I'm going to kill him. He didn't know that Isaac was going to live another 35 years. And so he wasn't going to get a chance to kill him. Finally, Jacob bribes him off with a whole bunch of gifts when he comes back in the promised land. 
Esau decides. Esau comes out with 400 men to meet Jacob when Jacob comes back in the promised land. You don't come out with 400 men just to say hello to you. No, of course not. But God changes his heart. God wrestles with Jacob that night, not because Jacob was a sinner, but to show Jacob that all along, all the people who had opposed him were actually God himself. And Jacob is wrestling with God the brother. See, during the night, when God came to him and attacked him, it was dark. And Jacob didn't know who it was. He thought maybe Laban had come back to fight with him some more because Laban had just left. Then he thought, well, maybe it's my father in his blindness has come to fight with me, fought with me for years. Then he thought, maybe it's Esau. Esau's come over here to have it out, mano a mano, you know. He's left his army behind, we're going to have it out. But it began to dawn on him, no, this is the angel of Yahweh who's wrestling with me. And the message was, all your life, from fighting with Esau in the womb until now, I've been the one behind those people wrestling with you, Jacob. And I was wrestling with you for the purpose of causing you to grow up and become strong and mature. Just like a father wrestles with his child. I'm your older brother. Esau is not your older brother. Jesus is your older brother. Esau wasn't the one fighting with you. I was the one fighting with you. And I wasn't trying to kill you. I was just wrestling with you to make you strong, to teach you the martial arts. Now you've learned. Now you're 97 years old. And I'm going to give you a limp to remember me by. And you can come on in the promised land and I'll send my spirit ahead of you and we'll pacify Esau. And Esau will leave you alone. This story says... Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. You are now mature enough to wrestle with me. I have limited my power, obviously, says God. But you can wrestle with me all night long. You're now mature enough at the age of 97 to come back in the land. Well, that's something about brother-brother situation. And this balances the story of Cain and Abel. And it displays God as the brother. Okay? The brother is the one who wrestles with us to make us strong and mature. And then there's the Joseph story. we got to spend an hour on Joseph. How could we not? Joseph takes us a step further. Joseph goes out into the world where he encounters the daughters of men. In fact, the Joseph and Judah stories are parallel. Joseph and Judah were both pretty much the same age. Joseph was probably slightly older. I know you think Joseph is the youngest because he's listed last. But if you look at the chronology, he's not the youngest. He's listed last because it took a miracle to cause him to be born. But in terms of the chronology, Joseph is probably the fourth oldest son. And Jacob puts the robe of authority on Joseph because Reuben has already defiled his father's bed by sleeping with his concubine. And the second and third born sons, Simeon and Levi, have destroyed their possibilities by murdering the people of Shechem. So the first three sons are disqualified, and so it falls to Joseph, and Joseph is given the robe. But Joseph and Judah are pretty much the same age, and they're doubles here. In Genesis 38, we read that Judah goes out and he marries a Canaanite woman. Well, there you are. You know, he's gone out and committed intermarriage with a Canaanite woman. He has these sons, and when the sons grow up, he marries them to a Canaanite woman. And God doesn't like these sons, so he kills them. He kills Ur and he kills Onan. He doesn't kill him for anything other than refusing to do his duty. And then Tamar, Judah says, wait till my third son grows up and I'll marry him to you. Which was what the custom required. But he didn't do it. And so she disguised herself as a prostitute and Judah got involved with her. So not only is Judah just intermarrying with the daughters of men because they're pretty, 
He's fooling around with the daughters of men even when he cannot see their face. It says that she had a veil wrapped around her face when she played the harlot with him. <laughs> now he's determined to go out here and commit intermarriage. And the whole covenant is about to be ruined because Judah and the other sons are committing this third sin. And they're offending against the matchmaking spirit. Well, meanwhile, Joseph's gone down to Egypt. Joseph has become one of the most powerful men in the court of the Pharaoh because Potiphar is the captain of the Praetorian Guard. Potiphar is the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh. So Potiphar and his guys are in charge of protecting the Pharaoh. So when the Pharaoh walks from here to there, Potiphar and the other secret service guys are walking right along next to him. Who's Joseph? Joseph is Potiphar's right-hand man. In fact, it says Potiphar left everything in Joseph's hand. So from now on, Joseph is in charge of the secret service. Joseph is in charge of the guards of Pharaoh. So everybody knew who Joseph was. If you wanted to get something done at court, you went to Joseph. Joseph was important. And it says he was handsome in form and appearance. Like me. And so his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Now, maybe she was some young trophy wife, you know. But whoever she was, Joseph has got a problem. It says she kept after him day after day after day. And Joseph can think about this and realize that if he doesn't go along with this woman, <laughs> she may charge him. I mean, it's going to go bad with him. Of course, he could go along with her. Potiphar would never find out. None of those servants are ever going to tell. And, you know, it would be okay. But he won't do it. He refuses to get involved with the daughters of men. He would rather die than disobey. So you know what happens. She accuses him of trying to rape her anyway. Does Potiphar believe her? No. If Potiphar had believed her, Joseph would have been put in prison and the first day they would have taken off his little finger at this knuckle and then at this knuckle and then the next day this finger and this finger and toes. And after about six weeks of having different parts of him cut off, they would have mercifully put him to death. That's what happens if a slave rapes a master's wife. Potiphar didn't believe her. He knew Joseph, but there wasn't much he could do about it. Because here she is, the wife of an important member of the Egyptian nobility, doubtless from a noble family herself. They're all screaming for Joseph's blood. So Potiphar does the next best thing. He puts Joseph in the prison, which is also Potiphar's responsibility. Potiphar is in charge of the prison, and he says, Look, there's not much I can do to help you out, Joe, but I can put you down in the prison here. At least I don't have to put you to death, and we'll put you in charge of things, and you know, you'll have better food than some of the prisoners. And so Joseph goes down there, and... You know the rest of the story. Well, the other rest of the story that's important is Joseph, by refusing to commit the sin of intermarriage, winds up converting all these people. Pharaoh has these dreams while Joseph is in prison. Joseph is brought out. Joseph tells Pharaoh that the Egyptian gods are no good and that they need to serve the true God. And Pharaoh listens to him and believes him. And it says, and here's another place where the translators just refuse to believe what's written here. In Genesis 41, verse 38, Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? No, it says, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? This is only the fourth reference to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. So the Holy Spirit is coming to focus here. This is what it says in Hebrew. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh recognizes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who kept Joseph back from intermarrying with the wicked 
now converts the wicked, and now Joseph marries a cute Egyptian girl. Okay? He gets an Egyptian name, Zaphonathpaneah, and he gets to marry Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of Heliopolis. Okay? Because they're all converted. If the pagans convert, then you can marry them. Okay? That's what Moses did. Moses married Zipporah. You can marry outside if they convert. But if they don't convert, you don't get involved with them. See? That's the wonderful dynamic. So here, this story answers the sons of God and the daughters of men. Oh, if only the line of Seth had refused to intermarry with the pagan girls, God would have converted the pagans. And then there wouldn't have been a flood. There would have been a wonderful, nice time. Such as we see in the story of Joseph. Joseph refuses to sin, so God converts the pagans. And you read this story on. When Jacob comes says the Pharaoh comes before him and asks Jacob to tell him about his life, and after it's over, the Pharaoh asks Jacob to bless him. The Pharaoh's down on his knees in front of Jacob. I mean, if you're Pharaoh, how often do you do this? Okay. Pharaoh gets down on his knees in front of Jacob and asks Jacob to bless him. you got to be converted when you're Pharaoh and you're willing to do that. And all the Egyptians, they all grieve and mourn when Jacob dies and they escort the sons up. Either the whole world is converted here at the end of Genesis. Of course, it falls into sin at the beginning of Exodus. But when you are faithful and you don't get involved with the world on their terms, God causes the world to get involved with us on our terms. So these three stories in Genesis answer the three falls of man and initiate human history. And that's our hours on Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. But we need to spend an hour on Moses too, don't we? Because with Moses we get to the Sabbath again. We have a history here. We have a crisis. And God tells to Moses, I'm going to cut all this off. Just like at the flood, we're going to cut it all off. The Moses story is a recap of the Noah story. It says in Exodus chapter 1, you would never miss this except that we know all this so much that we don't see the connections. <laughs> but in Exodus chapter 2, when Moses is floated out on the water... It says his mama got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. It says she got an ark and covered it with tar and pitch. And that is the only other time in the Bible that this word ark appears. In the Ark of the Covenant, that word ark is a totally different word. The only other time you have an ark in the Bible is Noah's ark. And Noah's ark is covered with tar and pitch. Now Moses' little ark is covered with tar and pitch. You cannot even begin to not see the connection there. So the world is going to be destroyed. And sure enough, this Egyptian world, the whole cosmos is destroyed. Their primary gods were the sun and the Nile. And all the gods in between. And God starts by killing the Nile, turning it to blood. He ends by killing the sun and putting it out for three days. And He judges all the other gods in between. And He finally wipes out their firstborn sons. There's another flood. And the entire world is destroyed. Only it's a limited world, okay? Instead of the total world that we have this first time, we have separated a group of people, the Hebrews, and we have put them in a world, but that world is Egypt. Now these people, the Sethites, were in the total world, but now we have a, you know, we've separated off a group of people and we put them in a world called Egypt, but just as the flood destroyed the total world, now the plagues destroy this world and cut it off. And now it's time to move into Sabbath rest. What do you do on the Sabbath? Well, you go a three-day journey into the wilderness 
and you have a festival to the Lord. That's what Moses says to Pharaoh. Let my people go, that they may go into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord. He doesn't claim that they're supposed to be let go permanently. You notice if you read this, Moses doesn't say, we're never coming back. He just says, Yahweh says these people are mine, not yours, Pharaoh. And he wants us to go out a three-day journey into the wilderness and worship. Now, Pharaoh might have said, okay, sure, and then y'all come on back. Of course, if he'd done that, he would have had to admit that Jehovah was really God, and that would have caused him to have to rethink a bunch of other things, and the whole story would be different. They might have left Egypt peacefully. But it didn't work that way. So the flood came, and the old world was destroyed, and Moses goes out into the new world and starts a new world. It's interesting some of the other parallels that happen. We move into Sabbath now. We move into a time of rest. Cut off the old, have a day of rest, a whole year in the wilderness. It takes a year to build a tabernacle. And the second year, in the first month, they start to move out to the promised land. Just like you had a year in the ark, so you have a year in the wilderness. Just as God started the whole world over again with Noah and his family, so God says to Moses, I'm going to kill all these people. I've had it with them, and I'm going to start over with you and your family, Moses. Remember that? And Moses says, oh, no, don't do that. So God listens to him. But it might have been just like Noah. It might have been starting over with just a family. When you have the Sabbath, you have to move forward. But what's happened at the Tower of Babel? They said, we don't want to move forward. We want to stay right here. Davis Tower. What did the Israelites do when they got into the wilderness? They said, well, we don't want to go in that promised land over there. We'll stay right here. We'll stay right here. Because there's giants over there. There's not big grapes over there, but there's giants too. Giant grapes and giant people. And we don't want to go in there. And so we're going to stay here. So God killed a bunch of them off after 40 years. He moved them in anyway. So it's a Sabbath. And a new history starts. This history came to an end with Noah and a new history started. The history of the patriarchs. The history of the patriarchs comes to an end with Moses and a new history starts after this Sabbath that comes when God puts them out in the wilderness and lets them start over. And this time, it's not going to be a history of individual people. Adam, Cain, Sethites, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. It's going to be a history of a collective people, a nation. And it's going to go through these same three stages here. Now, we spend an hour on Moses. We need to spend an hour on the law because the law is the thing that God uses to initiate this history. The first commandment comes in the context of the Sabbath. I'm Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, now the house of bondage. I've delivered you. I've killed off the old world. We've made ourselves an exodus. We've been through the flood. We've been through the Red Sea, which is going through the flood. They're both baptisms. The New Testament says the Red Sea is a baptism. The New Testament says the flood is a baptism. We're past the baptismal boundary into the Sabbath day. Hmm. Here we are. I'm Yahweh your God, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Don't have any other gods before me. That means the Father is supreme. Don't make for yourselves a carving. The word carving there is the same word used for the Ten Commandments, which God carved with His finger. You respect God's carving, which consists of words, and you don't set up your own carving that consists of an image. The opposition of language and images, of what you hear versus what you see, is all here. He says, don't set up a carving, because if you do, God will punish you to the third and fourth generation. 
because he's jealous and he hates it when you do that because it really shows you hate him if you worship through carvings and images. That's the second commandment. I'm just going to tell you that has to do with brother-brother problems and fratricide. And you can see it in the judgment comes down the generations. And then he says, and the third commandment is, you will not carry God's name in vain. He says, I'm going to put my name on you, and you're going to be called the people of Yahweh. Don't you carry that name around in an empty fashion. Don't you go around claiming to be a Christian and then living like a pagan. That's the first thing it means. It also means don't lift it up. Don't lift up my name in praise and not mean it. Because it's the Spirit who enables us to carry His name properly. And if you don't carry His name properly, you've grieved the Holy Spirit. You see, carrying the name has to do with how we go out into the world. You go out here among these pagans, you have to go out there as a Christian, carrying God's name. The Pharisees didn't do that. It says, you traverse land and sea to make one disciple. And you claim to be carrying my name, but you actually are making sons of hell. This has to do with the third area here. Now, it may not be immediately obvious, but if you buy this little book here, which only costs $3.50, it will explain that, and we were going to explain it when we get back together in a minute. But I'm going to say a few things about it now, and then we'll look at the history, and believe it or not, we will, I think, get to the 20th century before we're done tonight. That's hour number 20. And we're halfway done. Okay, We're in the 10th hour here. Don't worship any other gods. Because I'm the Father, the Father is the one you primarily focus your attention on and worship. Abba Father, our Father, we've talked about that. And also because these people are a bunch of tribes. And how tribes live is they are oriented toward the powers of nature and to the ancestors of the past. So if you go to a tribe, they have a totem pole, and the totem pole has faces on it that represent the ancestors that are combined with animals. Because when you die and you're a member of the wolf tribe, why? You become part of the spirit of the wolf, right? And if you're a member of the bear tribe, you become part of the spirit of the bear when you die. Or the zebra tribe. If you're a member of the bear tribe, you do the bear dance, right? If you're a member of the wolf tribe, you do the wolf dance. Whatever tribe you're in, you want to become part of that wolfness of existence, the lupinicity of existence, or the bareness, the ursinity of existence, or the zebratude of existence. Whatever your tribe totem is, that's what you want to kind of become part of, that spirit of things, because you're oriented toward nature. Don't have any other gods before me. That, I mean, there are other gods. Angels are called gods, but they're all lesser. Okay, Those spirits are really there. Not exactly the way the tribes think of them. They're really there in some sense, but don't worship. And the other thing the tribes do is they worship the ancestors because when you die, you become an ancestor. And and from the next world, the ancestors are watching you with those big eyes. You're on a totem pole or in a house of masks. You put on the mask and then you're captivated by the ancestor who is also the wolf or whatever. Okay, And with those big eyes... They are watching you to make sure you never depart from the true course of rectitude. You must never change. Now, as a matter of fact, tribes are always changing. They spend a few years being a village tribe and living in peace. Then they go on a war path and become a violent tribe. Then they go back. They say that their traditions go back thousands of years, but we know that actually tribal traditions go back three or four generations. But that's no surprise. I mean, your children are going to grow up and not know some of the things you know because you didn't tell them. 
And traditions really don't go back all that far when you stop to think about it in any society. Well, tribes are oriented toward the past. They're oriented toward fathers. And Israel was that way. Oh, they look back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God says, no, uh-uh, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. You look to me. I'm the father. And this is going to be the issue where God breaks them out of being a bunch of tribes during this next period of history we're going to look at, the time of the judges. Then they're going to move into a period where the problem is the brother-brother relationship. And that comes about because if you have a society that's got a bunch of images and people are worshiping at shrines like icons, then I'll be ruthlessly blunt here and say like our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox brethren tend to do. You know, it's very nice to talk to images and icons because they don't talk back to you. And that's not what real people are like. If you have to interact with real people, it's frustrating. So the most frustrating person you can interact with is your spouse. You get madder at your spouse than anybody else because you expect them to agree with you on everything, and when they don't, it makes you mad. I mean, the closer you are to somebody, the more you expect them to agree with you on everything. And men and women are infinitely different. Men never completely understand women, never understand them at all. And vice versa. Of course, you know, that difference is what makes for all the chemistry. But it also makes for frustration. And so you tend to become homosexual because it's easier to get along with somebody that's like you. And it's a lot easier if you have a problem to go talk to a statue or a picture because after all, a statue or a picture won't say anything back to you and won't frustrate you. So that's going to be a problem in the second phase of Israelite history, the kingdom period. And then when we get to the third period, after the exile, we'll see that intermarriage is the problem. And that is going to be something that comes up in Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi, where God says that he has heard the tears of their earlier wives and he's going to judge them for going after the pagan women. We'll take the lecture back up at this point. You got a red car and a trophy wife because you had a midwife crisis and dumped off your old Christian wife. You get a cute young pagan wife. And your Christian wife, her tears have flooded my altar, it says in Malachi. And in Ezra and in Nehemiah, both books climax with the problem of intermarriage. It becomes the big problem here because you're compromising with the pagans. So God's law sets in motion this history. And this phase through, again, revealing more about the father, more about the brother, more about the matchmaker. We want to spend an hour now on the age of tribes in Israel. We will spend a little bit more time on this because we are moving into neo-tribalism in the Western world today. And a lot of things that are true about tribes are going to be relevant to us. And they're always relevant to the church because the church is the true form of the tribe. The local church has a tribal organization, not a national or an imperial organization. And so the period of Israel from Mount Sinai to the kingdom is important in understanding the sanctuary. It's important in understanding the church, and it's important in understanding certain times of civilization. And this is an age of tribes. If you look at this time in history, the Israelites, they don't set up idol shrines to Jehovah. They are involved in worshiping other gods, breaking the first commandment. And they're involved with other tribes. They're broken up into tribes. If you read the book of Judges, it'll tell you that so-and-so is from such-and-such a tribe, and -and so-and-so is from such-and-such a tribe. And they're at war with Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Ishmaelites, Moabites, Edomites, Amalekites, Stalagmites, Stalactites, Emim, Zumim, Zamzumim, Anakim, Raphaim, the Eames and the Ites. Okay? A bunch of tribes. 
That's who they're up against. Now, what are tribes like? Because what tribes are like has to do with what God is doing in the law and with Israel at this time in history. What Israel is like, the kind of thing that our society is probably going to tend to move back toward, although not absolutely. History is a one-way street. In a tribe, you don't have very much division of labor. All the men are warriors. And if it's a village, all the men are farmers of one sort or the other. The only exception is a priest. In a tribe, the shaman is different from everybody else. But everybody has his plot of land, and everybody is a warrior. And if you look in Israel at this time, you'll find that everybody is a member of the militia. Everybody is given a plot of land. Everybody has his own vineyard and his olive yard and his grove, his house, his vine, his fig tree, and his field. That's a tribal type situation. Everybody in agriculture, everybody a warrior. That's the way Israel was at this time. Division of labor means that some people spend their whole lives doing one thing and other people spend their whole lives doing something else. The tribes don't tend to be that way. Everybody does pretty much the same thing. Tribes gather together in small groups around a common table. They sing and dance with enthusiasm. Festivals are a major part of tribal life. Not a major part of national life. Okay, we have special days, but they're not festivals. A nation is too big for a festival to work. But there are festivals in Israel at this time. God puts it in the law. Enthusiasm. Dancing. You can read about it in Judges. There are several descriptions of Well, there's one in particular. It says every year the maidens would come and dance there in the 21st chapter. And they danced the husband-catching dance. And you know the boys would go out and select the girl he wanted to marry. And if the girl was agreeable, they'd get married. Dancing on the village green, as it were. It's in the 21st chapter of Judges. Tribes carry tattoos cut into the skin. So did Israel. That's what circumcision was. And we're seeing this coming back in society again today. Not only the you know growth in decorative tattoos, but more importantly, this body piercing and stuff like that. Those are tribal things. Whether it's sticking a bone through your nose, or stretching your earlobe out real big, or sticking a nail through your nipple, or whatever kids are doing these days. Those are tribal marks. Okay, The kids who do those things have all set themselves apart over here to this group, the group of kids that have got their bodies with nails through them, or a ring in their lip, or whatever. Something strange in the neighborhood. They're doing something strange to mark themselves out as a separate group of people. And if you're in the Farrakhan tribe, the whole Farrakhan tribe nationwide has got a mark. And we also have these other color tribes, the drug-dealing tribes that come out of California and other places. that spread throughout the country. They wear a certain color, or they have a certain mark on a certain part of their body that identifies them as a member of these groups. Tribes exist because people are lonely, and they need to form small groups to be a part of, and they have this mark. Our mark is baptism, which does not put a physical mark on us. It's invisible. And so it's a sign of the Holy Spirit. And circumcision was invisible, too. I mean, you didn't go around, you know, you wore clothes. So it was invisible tattoo. But visible tattoos are what mark out tribes, okay? Being an American, you know, every American man doesn't have some mark on his wrist or shoulder or some visible place that says, I'm an American. But if you're in a tribe, you do. Nations don't use tattoos. Tribes use tattoos and body cuttings and the like. In Israel at this time, then, you had a priesthood that was separate from all the rest, and then everybody else was in tribe. You know, they didn't have the individual tribal tattoos. They had individual tribal garments, what kind of plaid they had, 
I doubt if it was plaid, but they wore different garments for each tribe, certainly. Tribes are ruled by elders, the old guys. Okay? The tribe gets together to make a decision. All the braves have their say. And after all the braves have had their say, I think that's what we ought to do. I think we ought to go over there and make war on those people over there. I think we ought to wipe them out. Yeah, let's wipe them out. Okay, and after all the braves have had their say, then one of the old guys gets up and says, okay, you braves have had your say, now sit down and shut up. This is what we're going to do. And the old guys say the way it's going to be. And all the old guys say, yeah, you braves, you think you're so tough. We're not going to go fight those people. We're going to get along with them. Okay, elders run things. That's how Israel was run at this time. Read Judges again. Read Joshua. Read the early chapters of Samuel. You find elders. And that's how the church is run. Discipline is very important in tribes. You break the rule of the tribe and they kick you out, which is a real bad thing because you've got this mark on you and where are you going to go now? You don't want to get kicked out of a tribe. Being cut off from the people is important. That's in the law. Now, there are certain sinful tendencies in tribes. As we mentioned, tribes tend to look back to the ancestors, and so God breaks that off. God says, I'm the ancestor. You want to look back? Look back to me. Don't look back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you look to me and don't have any other gods in front of me. I'm the true ancestor. Tribes tend to be fixated on the past because of their orientation toward ancestors and powers of nature. Tribes are for men only. Women don't exist in tribes. When the tribe gets together, the women aren't there. Only the braves talk. The braves beat the women up if they get out of line. That's how women are treated in tribes. Hey, you get tired of one woman, you go get another one. Women are just cows in tribes. But God says, honor your father and your mother. That breaks that tendency in the tribe. That infantile male chauvinism that the tribe has, because tribalism is kind of childish. And the church is supposed to be kind of childish, isn't it? And we're children of God, and we come in here being happy about that. But tribes tend to be like little kids. You know, I'm important and you're not. Yeah, yeah. Men over women that way. Well, women are heard in Israel. They have a place. And uh, we honor father and mother. Tribes are also radically democratic. Your tribe is a democracy. A lot of the wealth is held in common, and tribes are held together a lot of times by envy. If anybody in the tribe really starts to get rich, then we know why that's so. If I start to get rich, if you, you start to get rich, okay? Let's say that Kevin is getting rich. But well, we know why. Because his wife has got the evil eye, and she has hexed everybody else. And so in a tribe, you pull down anybody who starts to get ahead and you accuse them of magic and of witchcraft. They don't permit anybody to get richer than everybody else. Everybody has to be more or less the same. Well, God counters this in the Ten Commandments by forbidding envy and by forbidding theft. Okay, And those kinds of things tend to change the society and make it more than just a bunch of tribes. There's one other thing that happens, and this takes us back to what we looked at on the weekend. Tribes tend to look back to the past, and the tabernacle that God sets up is not a reminder of the past. It's a reminder of heaven above. The tabernacle is an image of the cloud, and I didn't discuss this, and we can't do it now. But the whole construction of the tabernacle with those bars that run this way in the tabernacle creates a symbol of a three-story thing. In the courtyard, the pillars went up to a silver ring on the top. The tabernacle starts with a silver socket on the bottom and goes up to gold on the top. 
Now, symbolically, that's stacked up on top. Okay, And if you study it that way, you see that it's stacked up and the whole thing is surrounded by this goat hair tent that's a cloud. And so God tells them, don't look back, look up, look up to me as king. That starts to change their consciousness. And over the course of time, Israel begins to grow out of being a nation of tribes into a kingdom. And so now we're going to spend an hour on the kingdom, this period here. What do you have in a kingdom? Well, in a kingdom you have cities. The original cities in Israel were just fenced to villages. There wasn't much division of labor in them. But when you get a city, you get a division of labor. You get a whole bunch of people into a city, you can actually start to do things that are different. You have enough people together, you can have a choir. Well, you have that in the tribe. You can have an orchestra. You can have an art museum. You can start to develop trade and commerce. You can have specialization and division of labor, which means you start having to have a money economy because there has to be some easy way for me to trade with you what you want and back and forth. So where in tribes you can get by with barter, the economic system in a city culture tends more toward money and that creates different kind of economic situation. Well, you get to the kingdom period in Israel, and that's what you have. you got a capital city. You have other cities that become important. And you are interacting with other nations, not with other tribes. The kings in Israel are interacting with Syria, which has another king named the son of Hadad, and a capital city named Damascus. And they're interacting with Assyria, which has a king named Tiglath-Pileser, and a capital city named Nineveh. And they're interacting with Egypt, which has a king named Pharaoh. And I don't remember the capital city. It's not mentioned, as I recall. Each of these are now nations. Israel is a nation among nations. Nations have capital cities. Nations have a different kind of culture. Now, you've still got the tribal situation underneath, because you still have villages, you still have people on the land, you still have some people who live that way, but now the pioneer part of the development of human civilization becomes the national culture, the concentration of wealth, specialization. You see, when God put Israel into the promised land, he divided up the land and everybody had his own plot of land. But as the generations went down and they began to multiply, you've got too many people for that. As the land is divided up among your children, they're smaller and smaller parcels for each child. And soon there's not enough. So there's a provision in Leviticus 25 where you can lease out your part to somebody else. So the brother who really wants to be a farmer winds up leasing until the Jubilee year where God takes it back for a year and then it starts over again. He leases out various parts from the other brothers. And where do they go? To the city where they become a cobbler or a shipwright or an orchestra musician, you know a loot maker, whatever. They have to specialize in something because you got to have some way to make a living and you're not growing it. So you've got to make something that you can exchange for money and make a living that way. So you get division of labor, you get city culture as the population grows. Now, that means you can have high culture. You can have a professional army, not just a militia. Some people can specialize in being in the army. Oh, David's great sin in 2 Samuel 24 was to try to merge the professional army with the militia. Joab said, don't do that. Even Joab had enough sense to know not to do that. 
No, keep your professional army over here to be ready in case of an attack while you call up the reserves. Because a militia, where everybody is a soldier, the tribe, that's the reserves. Joab understood the difference. David decided he wanted to take it all over, and God judged him. Cities have walls. A tribe doesn't have walls. You move into the village, there's no wall there. Some villages might have fences, but in general they don't. Okay, it's just a place where the people are. The walls are not at the same kind as nations have. But cities have walls to defend them. And so do nations. Nations put up walls around themselves. In fact, the Roman Empire had a whole wall that went around it. Just like the Great Wall of China, which is another wall. You can still see part of the Roman Wall. If you go to England, you can see the part that went right across England. And if you don't have a literal wall around your country, you have fortifications. So if you read the stories of the kings, you'll see the good kings are building up the fortifications around the land. Okay? Marking it out. Walls. It's a little bit different from the tribe, which is often a group of people that's on the move. Now, since you have a city and you have a monarch, you can develop a different kind of worship situation. Instead of the tribal worship where everybody gathers around a table with a bunch of enthusiastic singing and hand clapping and shaking the spear and eating the food together and pushing the women out to the edge of the circle and gathered around the fire, fire and the food and gathered, dancing, singing. You get monarchical worship, which is controlled and ritual and artistic because you're in a city and you want all this glory around your king. So you get a monarchical kind of worship situation, cathedral worship. Think of it that way, because that's what a cathedral is. A cathedral is where the bishop, who is a monarch in the church, has his chair, his cathedral, which is the word for chair. You catheterize the bishop. You cathedral him, sees it in his chair, and that's called a cathedral, and it's a cathedral, because it's built around that chair. He is the monarch of the church. And so the ritual becomes monarchical. People process in. And there's a choir and an orchestra. And everything is formal, decorated, beautiful. Inside a building instead of outside around the fire. The food, well, food becomes real secondary. Elders, we don't need elders anymore. We've got a royal court. Is that all bad? No, it's not wrong to have that as long as you don't lose the tribe too. But what happens, of course, historically, is the monarchical kind of worship pushes out the tribal worship. So the medieval kind of worship pushed out the early church kind of worship. And then that became a problem. We will discuss that. Nations and cities don't focus on ancestors and powers of nature. They focus on the powers of heaven and the calendar. Because that gives you control over a large area of space. The sky runs from one horizon to the other. Not just over your little tribal area. That's the animal who's nearby. But in the nation, you look to the whole sky, which covers the sky covers your nation. All the wall. The wall is out there, and the sky is over it. That's what you look to. And the calendar measures out the life of your nation, and the priest is somebody now, not who keeps the sacred fire going. That's what a tribal priest does. He keeps that sacred fire going. It must never go out. That fire was started by the gods. You must never let it go out. And there's some virgins here, and their purity is the purity of worship, and they must never be defiled. In Rome, when the Vestal virgins were defiled, that was bad news. 
And the sacred fire was always kept going. In Israel, the priests kept the fire going on the hearth that Yahweh lit on that altar. They kept it going all the time. It's never go out. That's what a priest does. Now the priest measures the sky. And you look at these nations, whether it's the Egyptians or the Aztecs or the Mayans or the Incas or the Chinese, their city civilizations are astrological civilizations. And the temples that they build are decorated with star signs, and the temple is a replica of the sky. They don't put tattoos on the body. They put marks on the wall. Tribes don't do that. Tribes mark the body, or they put on masks. Nations mark the walls of the temple. The signs. It's the same kind of thing, only different, because now we are thinking of this entire nation. The Egyptians had to think that way, I mean, you only had one source of water, and that was the rain that fell a thousand miles down in Africa and made the Nile flood. And you had to know the sky. You had to watch Sirius. You had to watch the sun and the moon and know when the Nile was going to flood and plan for it. Big nationwide thing. Tribes just wouldn't work in Egypt. And the other nations that were that way tend to be that way too. Well, now think about that just a little bit. If you're looking at the powers of the heavens and the never-ending cycle of the stars and the sun and the moon, you're going to wind up freezing history just as effectively as if you look back to the ancestors. Because the heavens don't change. Every now and then you might have a comet that tells you something bad's about to happen, but that's about it. The heavens don't change, and so nothing changes. The Egyptian ideal was an absolutely changeless society. And so was the Aztec ideal. And so was the Mayan ideal. So was the Chinese ideal. An absolutely unchanging order just like the sky. Well, God doesn't want that. And so this anti-historical tendencies are counteracted in the kingdom period by some things that God does. The second commandment absolutely forbids the venerations of man-made objects that eliminate shrine worship. And since only the priests weren't allowed to go into the temple, the temple could not be a shrine either. And so the whole idea of images on the walls that people are talking to is taken down. That doesn't allow things to go on. Second of all, and this is an interesting contrast, we said that the tabernacle in this first phase of history was an image of heaven because God wanted the people to start looking up and stop looking to the past. Well, now they're looking up too much. So he builds them the temple, and the temple is not a symbol of anything up in the air. The temple does not have any steps leading up into it. The temple is on an absolutely flat surface. Now, you'll see drawings in books that show steps going into the temple. That's wrong. Steps go into Ezekiel's temple, which is a different temple with a different meaning, which we will discuss in our next hour. But in this temple, you don't have it. It's flat on the ground. And as I said, God sets up the Psalms, and then the temple is a picture of the Psalter. Particularly, he builds the temple out of stone and he puts gold into it. And that gold that's in there, which has to do with glory, is a symbol of the Psalter. Well, what is the Psalms? Why, the Psalms are a whole bunch of tribal stuff. The Psalms are hand-clapping. The Psalms are enthusiastic. The Psalms are all about warfare. They're about squashing the head of the enemy. The saints will delight to bathe their feet in the blood of their enemy and delight to bash your babies' heads against the rocks. Oh, yeah, this is good warfare stuff. Don't you like that stuff? Actually, you don't dash the baby's head against the rocks. It says you dash the baby against the rock, which is God, and that's actually an image of salvation in Psalm 137, not of destruction. But 
You know, there is rough stuff in the old Psalms. May my enemy melt away like a snail and stuff like that. And they're enthusiastic and therefore gathered worship. And you've got all these instruments together and people are gathered around the hearth fire that's in the temple. And so what the Psalms do is this tendency to have a very cool Anglican monarchical worship is counteracted by the opposite. God says, oh, no, don't forget the tribes. Don't forget all your enthusiasm. Don't forget jumping up and down and all the other stuff, gathering together, enthusiastic singers gathered by elders around a table. That's what it's all about. And so the Psalms push things back in that direction. Now, we saw that God grew the kingdom out of the tribes because there were so many people. God grows the next phase of his civilization out of the kingdom by different means. You've got brother-brother strife going on at this time. So you've got these nations and these cities, and now there's something to control, something really important to control, a lot of money to control, a lot of power to control. Solomon has taken in 666 talents of gold every year. And you've got a 1,000 women. That's 999 too many. And he's multiplied horses to where he can have a big army. The law forbids those three things in Deuteronomy 17. Those are the three laws of kingdom. It's kingship, and Solomon breaks all three. Well, Solomon's got this really nice situation that other people want. And so you've got wars. I mean, he'd been smart, he wouldn't have done all that. Okay? He built up all this gold, and so everybody wants it. First thing that happened... After Solomon died, five years later, Pharaoh kind of took all the gold away. So, there you are. Laid all that gold up, and now it's gone. Stupid. Should have built better. First 20 years of Solomon's life, he did build wisely. And then the next 20 years, he oppressed the people. And oppression caused the people to sour on their nation. Which means the righteous in society began to break up into the remnant and have more tribalistic gatherings away from the national situation. And Elijah and Elisha set that up. We can't talk about that. We have to move on to our third hour, which is this third phase of history, which is the oikamene. I'm going to write that up there because it's a good word. The imperium, or the New Testament uses this word, the empire, which consists of a whole bunch of nations together under one umbrella. And you'll remember from the book of Esther that the decree of the Shah of Persia was sent out in all the different languages and all the different scripts to all the different peoples living in the 117 provinces of the Persian Empire. That's what an oikamene is. It's a whole bunch of nations under a common umbrella. A cosmopolitan situation. Well, it's in that situation that God calls the Israelites to live as witnesses, and we saw that they tended to commit the sin of compromise. Characteristically, a cosmopolitan or ecumenical civilization has many kings and governments, but a common overall culture. The sinful tendency is to compromise and fail to bear witness. I don't think I'm going to talk about this very much in terms of its ancient form. What makes it hard to talk about is that's what we're living in. We live in Western civilization, and although we don't have some shah or emperor over us, we have an ideology over us which makes Western civilization all kind of the same. Although there are different nations and different languages, there is over that 
something called Western civilization, in terms of which everything is the same. What happened to the Jews during this period in history is they broke up into denominations. That was something they'd never had before. They had four denominations. They had the liberals, who were the Sadducees. They had the Anabaptists and the Amish, who dropped out of everything, who were called the Essenes. And they had the political types, who were called the Zealots. And they had the Evangelicals, who were called the Pharisees. Now, the Evangelicals were the righteous, God-fearing, Bible-believing part of Israel, and they were faithful, oh, until a generation or so before Jesus, and then they just started being a bunch of legalists, you know. But they had originally been the best of the four denominations. And even in Jesus' day, the reason Jesus is always arguing with the Pharisees is because they were the only ones worth arguing with. You know, his converts came out of Phariseeism. That's still where the truth was. He doesn't fool with the people who dropped out. He doesn't spend much time with the zealots. One of his disciples had been a zealot. The Sadducees are all corrupted with Greek philosophy and liberalism. Uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They believed in the immortality of the soul. You know, they had taken away the physicality of the world. So it's the Pharisees that Jesus talks to. And what had worship degenerated into at this time? Well, it had degenerated into the synagogue. You know what a synagogue was? It was a classroom. It still is. It's a school. And you can read some writers today that say the church grew out of the synagogue and the synagogue was basically a school and a lecture hall and that's what the church ought to be. The church did not grow out of the synagogue. It grew out of the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament calls the church a temple a whole lot more than it calls it a synagogue. But second of all, that was not a good thing to convert worship into a lecture. Now everybody was studying the Word of God they came together in the synagogues and they studied the Word of God for hours every day. But when you look at the Gospels, what do you see about the Jews? They were studying the Word of God all the time. Did they understand it? No, they didn't recognize Jesus. And what else do you see in the synagogues? Almost every time Jesus goes into a synagogue, what do we find is in the synagogue? Demons. The synagogues were where the demons were encountered as often as not. The synagogues were demonized. The synagogue was pretty much a lecture hall, and that's really not enough for a full religion. And of course, they also had the annual festivals and the temple worship in Israel at the time as well. At this point in my lecture, I made some comparisons to Protestantism. We'll take it up at that point. This Protestant type of church, which we've had since the Reformation, in our kind of culture, is a lecture hall. And we don't have the Lord's Supper, but four times a year... And we sure don't have much enthusiasm. Now you go back to the Reformation, their music was very enthusiastic, very rhythmical. The hymn books of today have Reformation hymns in them. They take all the rhythm out. They say, Almighty Fortress is our God. You look in a Lutheran hymnal, it says, Almighty Fortress is our God. That's the rhythm. See? And all the Genevan Psalms were so rhythmical, they were called Geneva Jigs. But then they slowed them down and turned worship primarily into a lecture hall situation until the Charismatics came along and retribalized worship. Okay, because society is changing now. We're living in a time of change. Well, we could spend the rest of an hour talking about the oikamine. If you want to read more about it, read Daniel 7. God sets up these four beasts. They're the Doberman empires that are set up to protect Israel. Big fierce things like cherubim. They're like lions and leopards. God sets them up to protect Israel. Then one of them is Babylon, one of them is Persia, one of them is Greece, and one of them is Rome. 
And each time they turn against the people of God, God wipes them out and brings in another one. That's the oikomene, and the New Testament is set in that situation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the context. But we can't spend any more time. Our hour on this civilization is up. The Holy Spirit is you know, the primary thing here. Okay? It's not brother-brother relationships, it's intermarriage. It's how you deal with the world. You can deal with the world by running away from it and becoming an Essene. You can deal with the world by trying to conquer it with the sword by being a zealot. You can deal with the world by compromising with it and becoming a Sadducee and a liberal. Or you can deal with it by being a Pharisee and not know what you're doing. At least start out witnessing to it quite well. The book of Esther is the key book here. Mordecai thinks, I'm going to have influence in the world. And he tells Esther, don't tell him who you are. And then he disobeys the king. And those are the opposite of what he's supposed to do. He should have obeyed the king, and he should always have said who he was and borne witness. Obey and bear witness is the way you deal in the world. Mordecai does it exactly wrong, and the result is the Jews are almost wiped out until Esther, the heroine, persuades the king to change his mind. Well, that's this third phase of history where the Holy Spirit is primarily in view, and it brings us down to Jesus. And what does that bring us to? The Sabbath. This whole world is going to be killed off. It's going to be killed off with the destruction of Jerusalem. It might have been killed off earlier, but that's where it's going to be killed off. You read Matthew 24, it says, "...its end is like a flood." Desolations are determined. That's in Daniel 9. Uh, flood language picked up there in Matthew 24. It's going to be another flood. And we're going to end the old world. It doesn't happen in a political sense except with this one destruction of this city here. But that marks the end of the entire old creation. The end of it. And now we have a time of Sabbath rest. Which doesn't turn out to be all that restful. It's the New Testament apostolic age. But, well, Jesus moves into heavenly rest, and he, then he tells his people to do so. He moves into a new world. And then when you read the book of Hebrews, what is happening after Pentecost is the people are told to move into this new world. Now, at the Tower of Babel, they didn't want to move into the new world. And when the Jews came out of Egypt, they didn't want to move into the new world. And so Paul writes to them in Hebrews and says, you've got to move into the new world. There's a rest that remains, but you have to move into it. What was the problem in the apostolic age? A lot of people became Christians and then they said, I'm not sure we want to go all the way with this. You know, We want to go back to the leeks and the onions and garlics and the melons and cucumbers back here in Judaism. Okay, We don't want to proceed all the way through the wilderness into the new world. So that becomes the issue. And it gets settled. It's settled by AD 70 and that's our lecture on Pentecost. Uh, we spent an hour on Jesus. Went by pretty fast. We spent another hour on Pentecost. And now, for our last five hours of our 20 hours, we're going to spend time on the early church and the monarchical church and the Protestant church. We've really already done a lot of this. And then we'll talk about the crisis. And then we'll talk about all the answers. And we may not have time to get to all the answers. <laughs> Won't that just be too bad? But there you are. Well, what about it? This starts again. God is always going to reveal Himself in history now through father phases, brother phases, and spirit phases. But each one accumulates the things that were there before. So that each phase is a little bit more complicated. But we can still discern the pattern. 
We are now far enough along in history to where we can look back over the last 2,000 years of church history and discern this pattern. I don't think people could have seen this 500 years ago. You have to get certain distance down the way to be able to look back and say, okay, but what did the early church concern itself with? What was the big issue that the early church theologians had to settle? They had to settle the question of who God is. Okay? They had to settle the question of who God is. The heretics came along and said, God is not really three persons, he's just three aspects of one person. They said, no, he's three persons. Another heretic came along and said, Jesus is not really 100% God and 100% man. He's a merging of God and man. And the fathers had to say, no, no, you can't blend the creature with the Creator. He's absolutely God and absolutely man, but you cannot blend them. Otherwise, you're making the creation divine. All of these early church heresies and conflicts had to do with defining and preserving who God is. And that issue has been settled by around the year 600. Okay, then the church falls into sin and starts making icons. Okay, that would be interesting to deal with, but we really can't spend any more time in our hour on the early church. Interesting as it would be to investigate it at length, I don't have all that information in my head anyway, and it's not important for us to do it. The important thing to see is, at this time in history, the gospel that came to the people living in the Roman Empire sounded like this. And if this sounds like the way the gospel might be presented today, that's what you need to take home. They said, you know, you people living in the Roman Empire, you really don't know what you're a part of anymore, do you? Because your whole Roman Republic has fallen apart. You've had a hundred years of civil war, and now you have an empire. There are all these mystical cults that have come in, Greek and also from the Orient, and you're lonely and all of your traditional ideas have fallen apart, and you don't know where you fit anymore, but God has broken into history and He started up a kingdom. And there's a new family, and you can come into this kingdom and be part of a new family. And you can have a new birth. We'll baptize you. We'll baptize you stark naked. And you start over again in a new birth. That's how they did it. But I'm not saying we ought to do it that way today, but that's how they did it at some points in the early church. You can come into this new family and into this new kingdom where you have a new father and a brother and a counselor. And God is a family. He's three persons and also one God. And we're defining that very carefully because this is a family and it's a kingdom and you can come in and you can gather together and we're going to have a liturgy and we're going to sing together. We're going to sing these hymns. We're going to sing the psalms. We're going to gather around the table. Sometimes we'll even have a covered dish dinner together with the table. Very tribal, wasn't it? And it was a gospel that said, God is your friend. You can trust Him. Satan comes to Adam in the beginning and says, you can't trust God. He doesn't want what's best for you. But the message is, no, God does love you. And He does want what's best for you. And He offers you a new family that you can come into because you're lonely and you're isolated and your traditions have all fallen apart because the whole world has fallen apart in the first century. And for the first several centuries, that was the message. The church taught who God is, and the church formed as a gathered community. Now we move to the Middle Ages, and we can't go into all the transitional things, but we'll have to have an hour on what we call the Middle Ages. It's the middle time between the early church and the Protestant church. There's got to be a better name for that, but I've never sat down and said, okay, what would be a better name for the Middle Ages from a Christian standpoint? Let's call it the Kingdom Period. 
Because in this period, we find king and priest side by side, just as we did in the days of David. There's always a godly king, whether it's Alfred or somebody else. The kings all call themselves David. The kings were anointed with oil, starting with Charlemagne. Whether he called himself a Holy Roman Emperor or a King of England or a King of France, they were always the guardian of the church. And the archbishop and the king would be side by side, fighting tooth and nail over the turf, but still, theoretically at least, side by side. What was the doctrine of the church at this time? The doctrinal issue that had to be settled in the Middle Ages, now that we know who God is, now that we know that God is three persons that interact with each other, how does salvation happen? We know that somehow or other Jesus died on the cross. But what does that mean? The great accomplishment of the Middle Ages was the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. We're so used to it, we see it in the Bible all the time, but it took them some time to get it clear in their mind that Jesus dies taking our sins and death upon Himself so that we're free. Now everybody in the early church knew that, but they didn't have it specifically worked out against all the various errors. But the medieval theologians worked that out. You can really only work out a transactional doctrine of atonement where the Father and the Son are interacting with each other once you know that there are three distinct persons. So you have to settle the three-person question before you can settle, my God, my God, why have the two of you forsaken me? Okay? You have to know that there are actually three persons. There are three different persons to then understand that the Father and the Spirit separated from Jesus on the cross and He died for our sins, and to work that whole doctrine out. So the doctrine of the work of Christ is the central thing that's developed in the Middle Ages. The second person of God. Oh, this is a time of brother-brother strife. There's an awful lot of wars that go on in this period of history between these various nations that are coming up at this time. And the Gospel takes an interesting form. The good news comes to these people in a way that would surprise us. The good news, the gospel is this. You people live in anarchy. You people live in warfare. Your old gods have abandoned you, and you don't know how to live anymore. But God has given you His law. He's revealed to you in His law the right way to live. He tells you, don't have other gods. Don't make images. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He's given you His law. And the law is the most wonderful thing in the world when you are experiencing anarchy. And when there are tribes moving all over Europe, every 15 years there's another group of Huns or Vandals or somebody else coming through, raping all the women, killing all the buffaloes, and killing all the men. My goodness, are there no laws for us? God has given us laws. The law is the gospel to these people. Now that sounds strange to us because we live after that went sour. But it wasn't sour then. It was good news then that God loves us enough to tell us how to live. The early church went to people who were lonely and isolated and said you can be in a community. The medieval church went to people who were suffering and dying from war and conflict and anarchy and said to the kings. Usually the kings converted and brought their nations with them. The tribal chiefs said there are rules. If you will follow them, you'll have peace. It becomes a big thing. The Middle Ages starts in a time of perpetual war. And through that period, as a result of the peace of God and the truce of God and all the stuff you learn in junior high school and then forget about, the fact that you weren't allowed to fight during the 40 days of Lent, you weren't allowed to fight on Sunday, you weren't allowed to fight during the peace of God, 
gradually the church creates a time of perpetual peace where we declare a war and then we end it. That's something new in history. Declaring a war and then having a peace treaty and ending it. Before that time, you just fought all the time. Now we've gone back to it, haven't we? We get involved in all these conflicts around the world. We don't declare war. We're losing the inheritance that the church worked out during the Middle Ages. It was tough times. Well, but you know, when you live under the law for a long time, it becomes a terrible burden. And you begin to multiply laws. And the law that initially was a great deliverance because it gave you order and security becomes a tremendous burden. And that happens toward the end of the Middle Ages. And so God raises up Luther and we have to have a lecture on the Protestant era. The Protestant church from the Reformation down to today focused on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now that may be a little bit strange for you to hear because of your charismatic background, you tend to think the Holy Spirit is something that came into focus recently in terms of enthusiastic worship and the like. But actually, the doctrine of justification by faith, which the Reformers emphasized, is a doctrine of how God's salvation is applied to us by the Spirit. And that was the issue. See, the early church told us who God is, the medieval church told us what the law is and how Jesus has satisfied the law. But the question is, okay, how is that applied to me? Huh. How do I get the personal benefits of that? Do I get it by eating bread and wine? Do I get it by making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land? Or do I get it directly from the Holy Spirit? And the answer of Luther and Calvin and all the rest was, we get it directly from the Holy Spirit. We get the salvation from the Holy Spirit, and then we sit down to the bread and wine. We get the salvation from faith. And if you want to make a pilgrimage to the so-called Holy Land, you can. But in reality, the church is the Holy Land, so you don't need to go over there anymore. Leave those people alone. you got enough trouble as it is. Okay? The Holy Spirit was actually the doctrine that was in primary focus. If you go back and read the literature, that's the way they wrote it. Okay? The Spirit applies the salvation. So the doctrine of the application of salvation becomes an issue here. Well, we've already talked a little bit about this period of time and how compromise and intermarriage then becomes a primary problem. We've talked a little bit about this period and we have mentioned that the age of the Jews, of the ecumenical age down to Jesus, is a lot like the Protestant age. It was one large civilization, education, classrooms, are the way in which the church conducted its worship. Protestants have tended to do that. That's why you have me here. Okay? All these two-hour sessions. Well, we're supposed to do that, but that's not supposed to be confused with worship. It's a little bit different. And these kinds of things. Now, there's one other thing I want to add in here. See, every time God goes through this cycle, He adds something in. Church, state, and university. Which one of these periods formulated the doctrine of the church. The church as an institution takes form in the early first period. Which one developed the doctrine of the Christian state where you have a godly king and you have Christian laws and you have the peace? Yeah. The Christian state, that doctrine is formed. Which phase becomes all oriented toward the intellectual and where the universities multiply everywhere? Okay? This is the age of the university, of scholarship. I need to add something else in here. There's another important institution. The state is an agency of the sword to kill people 
And so simultaneously with the development of the state is the development of another institution that was new. What is that institution that developed in the Middle Ages? There are several of them in this city. See how much history you really know. Um, shall I abuse you further? You'll immediately, I think you'll realize it, it's the hospital. The hospital is developed. It was the knights. The knights' hospitalers who built the hospitals, and then the monks and the nuns began to run hospitals, and that's why the churches still run hospitals. Now they've all been secularized. Even the Catholic hospitals are run by corporations and everything nowadays. Pretty wretched situation when... Well, I don't even want to talk about it. I mean, the church needs to rebuild, but at some point the church needs to be back in the hospital business. If somebody has to have a kidney transplant, then okay, go to a corporation or a hospital for it. But for places for women to have babies and for cuts to be taken care of and tetanus shots, we don't need to go pay a million dollars for that kind of thing, and we ought to be doing it. We can just load ourselves up with things we need to do, but we can't do them yet. We just see that they need to be done, and, and the church really should be working on that. But these two institutions here, complementary, sword and healing, developed in this time. And of course, they've continued on. Once God puts something in history, it never goes away. But God put these things in here. What we think of as the church didn't exist before. There was the synagogue and the temple, but those were different kinds of things. The church comes into focus then, and now the university. Well, in this age you see of the university, that's where you get all this compromise, okay? Because of the intellectualism. In the Middle Ages, you had institutions of learning, but there was never the idea that you're supposed to blur or blend Christianity with the pagan ideas. It happened by default because they didn't recognize how many pagan influences were coming to them through Dionysius the Areopagite or through Aristotle when they discovered him later on. But they didn't intend to make these blendings. But compromise as a problem really comes up in the Protestant age. Well, folks, our next to the last lecture needs to point out that I think that this entire cycle is coming to an end. I think we are right at this point here where there's another Sabbath crisis coming, and this is going to start again. And we are moving even now into a neo-tribal situation in Western civilization because our civilization has fallen apart. The whole thing that was built up starting in the first century to this point, that whole course has kind of been run. But I think the easiest way to illustrate how that is is to think about how you present the gospel to people. The Protestant form of the gospel starts with the law and says, the law condemns you, doesn't it? And you feel so guilty. And you are burdened. But hey, look, you can be totally forgiven. You're justified by faith alone. You don't have to pay out any money. You don't have to do any penance. These things are fine, but they're not what's going to relieve your conscience. No, the Holy Spirit gives you justification by faith alone. Just trust in Jesus and you're free from the burden of the law. And you're justified from your guilt. The Protestant form of the gospel starts with guilt and law. And it says God has made a way out of guilt and law and offered you the freedom of the Christian. And then you can turn around and obey, but you obey because you're free, not because you're terrified. Well, now you just try that today with people. You know, a hundred years ago, if an evangelist came to town and preached that message, 
that was still in everybody's cultural knowledge. And people would repent and flee down the aisle. You know, 50 years ago, if D. James Kennedy went out with his five-point booklet and said, you know, God creates us, now you're under law, and God's law is real, and you're a sinner now, but there's a way. Why should I let you into heaven? You know, the two questions. God says, why should I let you into heaven? People used to say, well, because I've done good deeds, and then you show them that that's wrong. Try it now. If you die today, why should God let you into heaven? Well, I don't know. What's heaven? Who's God? I don't believe any of this stuff. Then you open up the Bible and start showing them stuff, and they say, why should I believe that? Our whole cultural capital that we used to build on is gone. You can't talk to people about the law of God unless people have learned the law of God. And they can't learn the law of God unless they learn who God is. Now, a Protestant form of the gospel only makes sense if people have internalized the medieval form of the gospel, which is that the law comes from God and teaches us how to live, which can be good news or bad news depending on what your situation is. And that only makes sense if you know who God is. But if the whole thing is gone, if all the water is run out of the bathtub, well, then you're back to square one. And I think in the church we're back to square one. Uh, the G. James Kennedy people say they find in Europe that way of presenting the gospel never worked. It had already all run out there. And now it doesn't work much here. People who watch that program on TV are mostly people in their 60s and 70s. Nothing wrong with that. He ministers to them, but people growing up in the culture since that time just don't have the background with which to appreciate what he's trying to do. Because he's functioning in terms of the Reformation paradigm and the Reformation model, the Reformation way of doing it, has kind of run out. And you've got to go back to the Bible and see what to do. Well, what about it? If that's the problem in the church and the problem with the gospel, what is going on in a wider culture? Well, in this next to the last hour here, what the Holy Spirit does over the course of time is create bonds and connections between people. Because the Holy Spirit is the bond between the Father and the Son. He is the covenant bond. A covenant is a personal, structural bond. The Father is the person, the Son is the structure, and the Holy Spirit is the bond. When you get married, a bond is put between you. And the matchmaking spirit wants to be the bond between a Christian man and a Christian woman. Okay? If a Christian marries a non-Christian, the spirit is still bonding that, but he's not real happy about it. Okay? There are all these bonds that we have. Think of them as little colored lines between you and other people. There's a deep red line between a man and his wife. And there are orange lines between you and each of your kids. And there are green lines to everybody else in this church. And there's a purple line to you and the people that you work with. And those covenant bonds are real. And that's why you feel pain if one of those people is mad at you. If one of those people is hurt or dies. And why should I feel pain if one of my children dies? I'm not the one that died. Or am I? The reason we feel pain, and I know that my child has gone to heaven, is because I'm covenantally connected to my child and that covenant connection is torn and rent apart. And I feel that as pain. Now, that's a mystical thing. I can't see it. I can't touch it. It's something the Spirit does. The Spirit creates bonds and makes people think of themselves as being part of a community. And as the Christian civilization grows and develops, those bonds become wider and wider and deeper and deeper to where people start thinking of themselves as Americans. But if the Spirit is being grieved, 
what happens? All that starts to fall apart. People don't think of themselves as Americans anymore. They want to find something closer to be part of. And so, the ecumene collapses into tribes. Now, I've got to identify with somebody, so I'm going to start wearing a nail through my nose and be identified with all the other people who had nails through their noses. Or, I'm going to join this group. Or, I'm going to join this church over here. That's what they ought to do, you see. I've got to find a group to belong to or else I'm sitting at home all alone. Now, that's very much like what was happening in the first century. All the old ways had given out and people were experiencing loneliness. And see, I think the form of the gospel, the way we ought to take the gospel to people today is a lot like it was taken in the first century. Because these bonds have all been weakened. You read older literature about the 4th of July. People used to have big celebrations at the 4th of July. Do people do it anymore? Well, it's just kind of a day off. Do you feel guilty about that? Well, you shouldn't. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's just a fact that people used to strongly identify with that. And now they don't. Because it's just not that real in people's minds. Too much time has passed. Too many problems have come up. Now, the conservatives, secular conservatives, they want to push all this back in. We've got to get the Constitution back in. We've got to get the Fourth of July back in. We've got to get parades. People ought to go out to parades. People ought to do all these things they used to do. Well, you can't. You can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. So while there's a lot that we agree with that conservatives say, as opposed to liberals, uh, you know, on abortion and other things, the general tendency to want to turn back the clock and recover the past doesn't work. The kingdom never works that way. God never goes back. So what he calls us to do is go forward, and that means we've got to go back to the Bible and figure out the things that can genuinely restore civilization because I think we are on the edge of the general collapse of the traditional Western civilization culture. And I don't think that's something to grieve about because there were always problems in it. Okay, There were always problems in this culture. There was Platonism here and Aristotelianism here and nominalism here. We want to get rid of all that stuff. So let it go and let God build again and it'll be built even better than it was before. That's a good thing. There are some fascinating aspects of the world as the world moves into a new way of being. I discuss them in the book here. I think I'm going to skip them. But the development of inventions and of international trade and the computer revolution, international discussion, those things make the old nation state impossible. Pat Buchanan wants to stop that. He wants to put some borders around our nation to where we only trade with ourselves inside and occasionally with someone else outside. It won't happen. I mean, I understand what he's getting at, that a lot of people are put out of work and the problems are real, but that won't work as a solution. Because every time something new is made, the world connection gets bigger. It takes more things from more parts of the world to make modern equipment. You have to have international trade. The more complex inventions are made, the more it requires things from all different geographical parts of the world. So you either conquer the world or you start trading with the world. Similarly, the way computers work and the information works, those things are going to break down the traditional nation-state barriers that we're used to. So what comes up next? I'm not sure, but I know where the church can go. And so our last hour is going to be just a few answers here. And 
The main answer is not ideal. We need neighborhood, parish, local churches where people gather together around a meal with elders and enthusiasm and they're singing the psalms. Now, you all have enthusiasm, but you don't yet have the psalms. And you're tired of hearing me say this, but I'm going to say it again. That you want, I know you want this, see. How do you do it? <laughs> That's always the roadblock. I mean, okay, how do we do this? You've got to have to figure out a way. There, there are some helps out there, but we don't have any good salter that I can say, hey, he is a good, really enthusiastic salter. Y'all could adopt and listen to these tapes and learn them and start doing them. Don't have it, sorry. All I can do is make you feel guilty and leave you guilty. <laughs> but at least that starts us thinking, you know. We want high content stuff. We want these. And uh, we need to reach out in our neighborhoods around where the church is to all the lonely people because they are lonely. They don't know what they are anymore. They're not connected to America. The 4th of July doesn't mean anything to them. If they're black, maybe Martin Luther King's birthday means something to them, but even that'll start to fade with time. They don't have any place that they feel. Half of them, their husbands have abandoned them or their wives have. See, family bonds are falling apart too, not just national bonds. All bonds are falling apart. It's weird. And they're all loaded up with psychological problems. we got millions of women who have killed their own babies. Psychiatrists may say, well, you didn't do anything wrong, but every time they're in the supermarket line and they see one of those life magazines with a little fetus on the cover, something inside of a woman says, oh, that's a baby, and I had one and I killed it. And then they're slowly going insane. We have millions of women in this country who are slowly going insane because of that. And we have millions of children growing up in broken homes. All of these are major psychological dislocations. And an intellectual form of the gospel won't cut it. Only the invitation into a new family will cut it. So I think we have a real early church type situation here. It is an exciting time to live because we're at the beginning of something. Now, when God started the Hebrew cycle of history, He dumped a Bible on them, which consisted of Genesis through Joshua. And when God started the Christian cycle of history, He dumped the whole Bible on us. And that's where God starts things because God is the initiator who typologically impresses His ways on us. So the most important thing that we can do is to get the Bible in our lives and minds. Which again brings me back to Psalms, the obvious thing in Psalms. And we need to learn everything else that's in there. Okay? I don't know how to tell churches to do this, but somehow even if we can't do it for our children, we need to do it. Really become Bible-saturated. And time is running out here. I mean, everybody says learn the Bible. But look at how the New Testament is written. The New Testament, unlike, I'm calling it the New Testament because it is the fourth section of the Bible. But if you read the Psalms, they don't quote the books of Moses. If you read the prophets, they don't go back and quote, say, as David said. But as soon as you get to Matthew, starting in Matthew, every page of the New Testament is a quote from the Old Testament that's commented on. I mean, Paul's letters, he's constantly quoting the Old Testament and commenting on it, saying this is fulfilled now. Matthew writes that way. John writes that way. Because what that is telling us is, is that understanding the Bible, and starting with the Old Testament, fills us up with the perspective that we need. What we need is total Bible saturation. And very briefly, I'm going to tell you four ways the Bible comes to us. 
the four ways the Bible comes to you, and then we're done. The first way the Bible comes to us as it changes us, it comes to us as law. That is the hottest form of God's communication to us because it consists of imperatives. Where God is telling you to do something. Look, people, I am telling you, you do this or I'll kill you. Now that is forceful language. There is no nuance there. There is no artistry there. It's a command. It's ferocious. And God shakes us up and starts us up by coming to us with imperatives. And the whole first book of the Bible, the first testament of the Bible, which we talked about the other day, from Genesis to Joshua, is basically centered in on God imperatives and saying, this is how you need to think, this is what you need to do. Now, the second part of the Bible is lyric or song and consists of our response to that. And that's focused in on the book of Psalms and Proverbs and the wisdom literature. Because God has told us what to do, and so what do we do? Well, we march out and do it, and we're singing as we go. We go out in the kingdom, and we're singing as we go. And so if the law is at the heart of the first thing God says to us, the Psalms are at the heart of the thing that we say back to Him, singing as we go. That's the second big hunk of the Bible, centered in there. The third thing that the Bible does, the third hunk of the Bible that comes to us, is judgments and evaluations. That's in the prophets. We heard the word of God. We marched out singing as we went. And then God comes and evaluates our works. In the case of Israel, it was pretty much negative evaluation if you read the prophets. But it's still an evaluation because we need that mid-course correction. See, in our lives, that third part of the Bible gives us the mid-course correction. We heard the word. We started to work it out. Then we made some mistakes and God gives us a prophetic mid-course correction. And finally, the fourth part of the Bible, the Bible comes to us as facts. Once the history is all over, we can look back over it and analyze it and understand it. And that's what Paul does. See, Paul comes at the end. He looks back over everything and he analyzes it and understands it. Only when you get to the end can you do that. And he sets out the doctrines and the facts. So that's the way the Bible comes to us. It comes to us as commands, as songs to sing as we obey, as mid-course corrections along the way. And finally, as we're really mature, we can look back over the whole thing and understand it. Now, that's got to be accomplished in churches that are gathered around tables with enthusiastic worship, but with whole Bible content. Right now, we've got a lot of charismatic churches that have got the enthusiasm, and they're increasingly gathered around tables. And we've got a bunch of Reformed people that have got a bunch of content and are terrified of clapping their hands or falling down on their faces. So we want to kind of pull these things together, and they will be pulled together, not by merging them, but by everybody growing up out of where they are toward a common goal. And then we'll see the rebuilding of the church, which is just pretty much destroyed today. And after we see the rebuilding of the church, our ancestors 800 years from now will be living in Christian lands and then in a Christian world. And they won't just be Europeans this time. It'll be wider parts of the world. Now, that's 20 hours. It's pretty much all in here, and I hope you will take my advice and take this home, and you'll find a few additional pointers along the way. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. 
You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm